I started thinking about teaching First Peter in the fall of 2019. Uh, so way before COVID, way before BLM, way before any kind of uh, experiences that we've had in the last 18 months where we Christians feel like the government is abusing our religious freedom that's constitutionally protected. And yet this book, while planned probably four or six months before anything radical happened in our society and really in our world over the last 18 months, it has been a perfect fit, not only for the political and medical events of the world, but I think even for our personal walks with Jesus Christ. I hope you've been encouraged and convicted, exhorted, challenged in your own personal relationship with Christ. I have, as I've been preparing uh, weekly for the messages, it's certainly been a study that has impacted my own heart and my soul. This morning, I spent some time reading the news, and the world hasn't gotten better in the last 18 months. And uh, the headlines all over the internet were pretty depressing. After reading the news for about 45 minutes, I was kind of depressed. I mean, there are new bills in California and nationally that aim to solidify the right to kill a baby anytime, anywhere, and nobody can interfere in that choice. If you saw what happened this afternoon, even in D.C., where two Congress women were yelling at each other over this issue, the division in politics over this issue is palpable. Bills in California that were just signed today that aim to take away the parental right to actually teach their children about gender issues. Bills that aim to tax you more and then takes your tax money, take your tax money and invest it into ungodly initiatives. Bills that aim to control your bank accounts and actually potentially limit your credit card usage. Bills that want to limit your interstate travel. There is a disregard for medical opinions in favor of political opinions. Unfortunately, our politicians are ignoring the border crisis. Our allies around the world that aim to advance freedom and democracy are being abandoned. There's a disregard for mounting deaths all over the world and violence. There's verbal abuse of people who are pro-police. And unfortunately, even our own politicians prefer the Islamic State over the democracies in the Middle East. The Taliban promised today a reign of terror as part of their justice system. Those are just the news from today. Everything that was on the headlines. And if you go back a few days, I'm sure you can make the list a lot longer. As you reflect on what's happening in our society, and this is home, this is California, some of the things I read about, this is here in our state. Jesus' words could not resound more powerfully. In this world, you will have trouble. That's what Jesus said to his disciples shortly before the cross. And as we've been studying the book of First Peter, we identify to some degree with the people of First Peter, the first Christians, because their lives were also difficult. Peter, as he wrote this letter, he was aware of the pain and the persecution of his readers. And he's writing to these first Christians who are fleeing the city of Rome. They're going north, heading towards Turkey, because Nero has commenced a horrific persecution against anybody 
who would identify with Jesus Christ. And so they become migrants who are, who are completely bereft of their possessions, families, friends, and their own church in the city of Rome. And so Peter, writing to these individuals, encourages them, even as we just heard read a minute ago, to stand firm. To stand firm in the grace of God. But in the middle of this difficult existence, Peter puts in a passage that he quotes from Psalm 34 in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And he promises in verse 10 that it's possible to have the good life. It's possible to have the good life on this side of eternity. And so we created this understanding a year ago that this book is about this primary theme derived from chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. The good life is available to those who are willing to live it according to what Peter teaches us. And so he encourages them to stand firm in the grace of God and to enjoy the good life. And he does so by dividing the book into three primary sections. And so here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to walk us through the whole book. You have to keep up. You have that sheet in front of you. And so go ahead and open your Bible if it's on your phone or your iPad or computer, wherever you have it. If you have it in your memory, that's even better. It's not going to be on the screen. The points will be on the screen, the main ones, because we're going to have to move fast. And I want to show you how this entire book fits together because it's been 51 weeks. It's a bit long under this header, The Good Life. And in your little sheet, you can see three bolded sections, two on the front, one on the back. And then you can see the division paragraph by paragraph as Peter presents it. And then you can see on the right side, in the right column, the points that support that main idea that is kind of like in that second from the left column. So we're going to move section by section. And I want to show you how Peter thought about this letter and what his aim was. And so the three sections are the good life in Christ from chapter one, verse one, all the way through chapter two, verse 10. The good life in the community, and that is in the context of the world, the secular community. And it goes from 2.11 until 4.6. And then the good life in the community of the saints in the church. That's 4.7 through 5.14. The reason that we've designed the first section to be focused on Christ is because Jesus appears more than half of the times in this first section. The references to Christ, the references to Jesus are primarily in this first section. And so then Peter presents Jesus Christ as the one who supports your good life. He's the foundation of the good life. And so our response to that is in verse 8 of chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So our commitment to Jesus, because he's the center of this first section, is to love him, even though we've never seen him. And that results in exuberant joy. But where does it all begin? Well, it all begins in the first two verses, which give us the foundation of the Christian life, the foundation of the good life in Jesus Christ. And we have seven specific points that support or define this foundation. The first is a divine perspective. We see that. In verse 1, to those who reside as aliens, that's your self-understanding of who you are as a Christian. You are an alien. Peter would repeat that 
two more times in verse 17 of chapter one, and then in verse 11 of chapter two. You're an alien and you're a stranger to this world. The divine perspective is that God views you as somebody who doesn't belong to this world. When Jesus prayed in John 17, before he went to the cross, he said, don't take them out of this world, but protect them in this world. But they are not of this world. You've seen those stickers all over cars, right? N-O-T-W, not of this world. That's Peter's perspective of every single Christian. That should be our perspective of ourselves if we are to enjoy the good life in Jesus Christ. Why are we aliens in this world? Because of the next point, because you've been divinely chosen by God. And we see that at the very end of verse one, who are chosen. You have been chosen out of this world. For what purpose? According to the foreknowledge of God, the father that establishes a relationship. God chose you as an individual to have a relationship with him. This relationship was established before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 says that you were rescued, you were saved, you were redeemed before the foundation of the world, which is when the lamb was slain in the plan of God also before the foundation of the world. But as you live in this world, as I live in this world, as a believer, we need some support and power because Jesus says, don't take them out, just protect them. And the power comes in verse two, by the sanctifying work of the spirit. The Holy Spirit is engaged in our lives. And he empowers us to do what? To submit to a divine master. That's in the next phrase, to obey Jesus Christ. That's our goal in life, to obey Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, my aim is to be pleasing to him, whether I'm absent or I'm present in this physical body. My aim is to be pleasing to him. That is the aim of every single believer. But how did that happen? This relationship that is empowered by the sanctifying work of the spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ. It's the next phrase to be sprinkled with his blood. That is reflecting a divine redemption. Jesus Christ died. We sang about it. I prayed about it just a minute ago that Jesus' blood rescues us from wrath, from judgment. It is our salvation through Jesus Christ and his cross. And that leads us to the final point of this foundation, and that is a divine provision. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. God is extending grace and peace to those individuals who are willing to establish their life on Jesus Christ. And when we tether our lives to Jesus Christ, blessings flow. And that's in the next paragraph, verses three through verse 12. Peter begins to explain multiple blessings that are given to those who are in Jesus Christ. There's three specific ones, a living hope, an eternal inheritance, and a glorious salvation. A living hope is right in the middle of verse three. It's a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's verse three. Our hope is alive because we ultimately will be resurrected with Jesus Christ as he had been resurrected. You can see that in Philippians 3.20. We'll have a body that is like his body. But also the second blessing is the eternal inheritance. That's in verse four. This inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and protected for you. God has protected a specific inheritance for you. Your name is on it. Nobody can mess with it. Nobody can steal it. Nobody can buy it from God. It is yours forever. And he's keeping it right now to give it to you when you see Jesus Christ face to face. And the third blessing that flows from the foundation that is found in Jesus Christ is a glorious salvation. A glorious salvation in verse five, it says it's going to be revealed in the last times. 
In verse 9, it says the outcome of your faith is the salvation of our souls. In verse 10, it says the salvation, this salvation, is what prophets and angels are carefully investigating. We talked about this a year ago. That angels are perplexed. And the language that Peter uses here, it's as if they're leaning over from heaven, looking down on the salvific events, the redemption plan of God on this earth. And they're confused. Why in the world would God save these people? The prophets in the Old Testament were trying to understand that as well. Who would be the savior and when he would come? They didn't know all the answers. Being on this side of the cross, we have the answers. We know the name of the savior is Jesus Christ. What's the point of all this? Well, verse 8, so that you would love him, even though you've never seen him. I hope that you can also stand in awe and amazement like the angels, like the prophets of old, at your own salvation. And there are times when we sin and we regret the decision and we feel guilty about the decision, and we repent over it. And I hope in that moment, that salvation becomes even more precious to you. Because for every single sin, we're supposed to be judged and sent to hell. But Romans 8.1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we stand amazed and in awe of this salvation. And here's a metric by which we can measure if we truly are in awe of our salvation. And that is in verses 13 through 21. If you are in awe of your salvation, then your life is characterized by three things. Hope, verse 13, you are fixing your hope completely, verse 13, on the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You have a hope-filled life. But then there's a second characteristic of your life, and that is holiness. That's verses 14 through 20. We have been called out of this world to be holy. Like who? Verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, holy you are to be in all of your behavior. And then there's a quote from Leviticus. You shall be holy for I am holy. And God will judge impartially. God doesn't care if you go to Grace Community or a small church. He doesn't care if you were born into a Christian family or if you just got saved from a completely pagan environment. He will judge impartially. That's verse 17. And then our lives are characterized by honor. Verse 21. Through him, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God is promising glory to Jesus Christ, but then that glory also gets extended to us. And that is explained in John 12, 26, when God gives us honor in eternity for being followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul, uh, Peter understanding all this says now there's a a way that you interact with people who are fellow believers that is different that's verses 22 to 25 now love characterizes your interaction with people specifically believers but it's not because they are loving you it's for three reasons and none of them have to do with reciprocal love In verse 22, it's because of obedience to the word of God. In verse 23, it's because you've been born again through the word of God. In verses 24 and 25, it's because the word of God was preached to you. The word of God three times mentioned in verses 22 through 25 becomes the motivation for our love for one another. We obey it. We're born 
by it, spiritually born by it, and it's been preached to us. And so our lives become saturated by the word of God. To what degree? Well, you can look at the first three verses of chapter two. It affects how we live. And look at the sins that are listed in verse one. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. All of those sins have to do with our relationship to other people. In other words, if love characterizes your life, and what kind of love is he talking about? Verse 22, sincere, fervent from the heart. That's the love that he expects. It's not a love of words. It's a love of sincerity, fervency, and from the heart. Heartfelt love. Then you're not going to be not going to express malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander in reference to other people. Instead, the word of God comes back again in verse two. Like a newborn baby, you're going to long for the unadulterated. And that's the opposite word of deceit in verse one. Not deceitful, you could translate. Milk of the word. It's pure. So that by it, you may grow in respect to salvation since you have tasted that the Lord is kind. The kindness of the Lord is the motivation for our obedience and our separation from sin. And so if you are an individual who loves other people, and if your life is saturated from the, by the word of God, with the word of God, then first of all, you will remove all sin. You saw that in verse one, all malice, all deceit, all slander, all, all, all. There's no room for compromise. There are no exceptions to any sin that we can hold on to. And your life will also be characterized by craving the word of God in verse two, and then savoring the kindness of the Lord. Peter then continues and wants to spotlight the Lord even more. And in verses four through 10, he goes into this image of a spiritual edifice being built up. A spiritual edifice being built up. And it all comes back to our identity in Christ. And you can see that as the concluding section of this first primary section, verses four through 10 of chapter two. You see the good life that is rooted in Christ finds its identity in Christ. Why do we have our identity defined by Jesus Christ? Because we have a solidarity in his nature. Verses four and five talk about Jesus being a living stone. And we talked about has been born again back in chapter one, having a living hope. So we are in solidarity with Christ in his nature and that we are alive and we will be alive forever with him in the resurrection. But there's also solidarity in election. In verse four, he is choice. But we already talked about us being chosen back in verse one of chapter one. And then in verse nine of this section, we are also a chosen race. So Peter is using the same terminology to describe Jesus and us. We are chosen. We are choice just as Jesus is choice to God. So we have a common election. But there's also a solidarity in our calling. Verse five, he is a priest and we're also being built up into a holy priesthood. And the same is repeated in verse nine, a royal priesthood. And then we have a solidarity with him in value. Verses four and seven talk about that Jesus Christ is precious in the sight of God. In verse seven, 
talks about he being precious to us. We value Jesus as God values Jesus. And finally, there's a solidarity in adoption. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, verse 9, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Just as God brought Jesus into this world and he functions as a priest, he's leading the church as the head of the church, as the groom of the church, and we're being built up into the spiritual edifice of the church of Jesus Christ. How did all this happen? Verse 10, you were not a people, but then you became the people of God. You had not received mercy. This is how it happened. Mercy. Now you have received mercy. You see, God's house, the church is being built up with people from every tribe and tongue and nation, from every people group. That's the mercy of God that in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were the chosen people of God. But now the Gentiles are brought in and we also can have a relationship with God. But why all this work? The answer is in verse nine, right in the middle. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. This is why God did all this. So that our lives would be a proclamation of the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And here, Peter is actually quoting Isaiah 43, 21. Isaiah 43, 21 says, The people whom I formed for myself will declare my excellencies. That's where Peter gets this idea, Isaiah 43, 21. God created people in order for them to live a life for eternity and through that life to declare his excellencies. You guys, this is why we were chosen. This is why you are elect. This is why you were made alive. This is why you are in the holy priesthood. This is why you will honor God for eternity. This is why we were adopted by the king. This is why our identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. So that we would not promote ourselves, so that we would promote him. Every single day, with every single breath, for the rest of our lives, and actually for the rest of eternity. We proclaim him for the sake of his name. Ultimately, it's all about him. That is the tender mercy of our God. And guess what? Back in verse three of chapter one, at the beginning of the section, he talks about mercy. And then in verse 10, he closes the section with mercy. Mercy begins our relationship with Jesus Christ and mercy sustains it and ultimately empowers us to proclaim his excellencies. Jesus is the source and Jesus is the conduit of that mercy. This is the good life in Jesus Christ. It's filled with all those blessings. It's filled with all those promises and our identity is found in Jesus Christ because everybody is looking to define themselves. You are, I am. Some of us are building our own little kingdom. We have a brand we want to advance. And we hope that our grand business idea will get us there. But for the Christian, his or her identity is not in that successful brand. It's in Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul and Peter and everybody else in the New Testament says, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, barbarian or Scythian. 
male, female, everybody stands on the same platform before the cross because we all find our meaning and our identity in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, then you will have the good life on this side of eternity because it's lived through Jesus Christ. Well, our life begins and it's sustained by Jesus Christ, but it is lived in this world. And that takes us to the second primary section. So if you're following along, I'm still on the first page, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2. So we live our Christian life. We live this good life in the community, in the community that is watching us. It's paying attention. And we know that this is Peter's way of kind of separate this section because he talks about Gentiles in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. You see that? And then flip the page to chapter 4 and look at verse, really verses 1 through 6. But in verse 3, he talks about the time has already passed for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Verse 4, they're surprised that you don't run with them in the same excesses of dissipation. And so they malign you. But verse 6, the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So some people who malign and then others will actually get saved. Back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, as Peter opens up this second, second primary section, he says, your life in the community is to be characterized by sanctification, by godliness. I urge you, verse 11, as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. And so your behavior is to be excellent among the Gentiles. We already saw that at the very end. He opens and he closes with the same grand idea. Make sure that your life as it is lived in this world is characterized by excellence, by holiness, by godliness. He talked about that in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And now he comes back and says, initially... God is the one you imitate and be holy like him. But then that imitation is lived out in this world. And so you keep your behavior excellent. But as you do so, in verse 12, they will slander you as evildoers. In chapter 4, they will malign you. So suffering is an essential part of the Christian life. Two weeks ago, we said this. If you want to escape suffering as a Christian, you have to give up on Christ. You have to give up on the gospel. Because at the end of chapter 5, and we'll get there in a little bit, suffering is inherent to the Christian faith. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.12, and Peter says the same thing. But the way we live our lives in the community of the unsaved is characterized by holiness, godliness, sanctification, and it's displayed through submission. So beginning in verses 13, and you can see that in your little sheet, it's all about submission. Verses 13 through 17, it's about submission to the government. We do this for the sake of God, verse 14. We're not doing this because somebody said this to us. No, for the Lord's sake, verse 13. We do this because it's God's will in verse 15. By doing right, this is the will of God. You will silence the ignorance of foolish men. We do this because we're serving God. We are, verse 16, bond slaves of God. And verse 17, we do this not because we fear men, but because we fear whom? 
God. The fear of God is the motivation for submission to the government. But then he shifts and he talks about submitting to your employers in verses 18 through 25. So you have the government overseeing us, and then you have your employer overseeing you as well. And we do this with the same motivation because ultimately we're being submissive to God. It finds divine approval in verses 19 through 20. It's for the sake of our conscience. And we find favor with God. Look at the very end of verse 20. The one who endures patiently when he's suffering finds favor with God. And then Peter says, let me give you an example. Just like Jesus. Verses 21 through 25. Jesus suffered unjustly. And you were called, verse 21, for the same purpose. He suffered for you and he left you an example. He committed no sin. He had no deceit in his mouth. He was being reviled, but he did not revile in return. He uttered no threats in verse 23, 23. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. In chapter four, he'll tell us, you also need to entrust your soul to the creator. And so Jesus becomes this example to imitate as we submit to our employers. Well, he continues. And the submission is also expected in the family unit. Verses one through seven in chapter three is all about the family, the marriage relationship. And so now submission is expected of godly wives. Verse one of chapter three, you wives also be submissive to your husbands. And the context there is what? Those who are unbelievers. In other words, this submission to your unbelieving husband is paired with suffering. It's going to be difficult. If it was easy to submit, you wouldn't have to tell a person to submit. But it's going to be characterized by an individual who is not a believer. And so verse two, you are to be chaste, respectful. This finds favor with God. Verse four, it's precious in the sight of God. And you're also, by doing so, you're imitating the women who were holy in the past, who hoped in God. And they were too submissive to their own husbands, verse five. And he gives us an example, Sarah, as she followed Abraham's leadership. And she wasn't frightened with any fear at the end of verse six. In other words, fear, again, isn't directed to the husband. She wasn't afraid, but the fear of God did control her behavior and it ought to control our behavior. But then in verse seven, you husbands in the same way, the idea is that there's a form of submission that the husband offers in the marriage relationship. How does that submission play itself out? Verse seven. Live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, there's a deference. There's a a knowledge, a study, an understanding of your spouse. She's a weaker vessel. You need to honor her as a fellow heir in the grace of God. Why? So that your prayers are not hindered. If you're a husband or a wannabe husband, if you want God to not listen to your prayers, then have a bad relationship with your wife. It's that simple. But if you want God to listen to you and your prayers, then live out verse seven. Honor her, understand her, treat her as someone who's weaker, 
but she is a co-heir in the grace of life. Certainly in the eternal sense, we've received grace for eternal life. But I think here the idea is marriage. It's the grace of life. And God gives this gift to people as part of common grace. But he continues, verses 8 through 12. Remember, we're still in the section on submission. To sum it up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly. That actually means loving. It's the same word that appeared back in chapter 1 where it says you need to love each other fervently. Same exact word. Kind-hearted and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you were called for the very purpose that you may inherit a blessing. So now there's a submission that's expected in all of our relationships. It's a divine calling for us to submit to one another and be harmonious, sympathetic, loving, kind-hearted, and humble. And it also solicits a response from God. And this takes us to the core passage around which we built the entire argument for 1 Peter. Verse 10, the one who desires life and to see good days. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears attend to their prayers. The face of the Lord is set against those who do evil. That's the conditions that God sets for anybody who wishes to enjoy life on this side of eternity. The good life is tied to the fulfillment of these principles. And he talks about God's face being turned against those who do evil. And in the next section, verses 13 through 22, he now introduces suffering again. Verse 13, who is there to harm you? That's the connection between verse 12 and verse 13. There are people who want to do evil and God's face is against them. In verse 13, there are people who want to harm you. Even if you should suffer, verse 14. Verse 17, you will suffer for doing what is right. Verse 18, Christ also did suffer. Suffer, 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 harm. Verse 14, don't fear. Don't be troubled. Suffering reappears in this section once again, coming from the people that are not in the church, those who are in the secular community, and they're watching our lives, and they malign, they slander, they harm, they oppose us. And so once again, Peter comes back and says, let me give you an example of what suffering can accomplish. And in verses 18 through 22, he sets up Jesus again as the example of somebody who suffered. And look at what he says. This really is uh, Peter's John 3.16. It's a simple way to portray the gospel. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, that just for the unjust, so that he may bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So now he says, Jesus Christ accomplished something unique. The grand plan of redemption was accomplished because of Jesus' suffering. So when you suffer, understand that God is doing something through you. He's doing something through all of those situations. And in Jesus' case, he redeems us. He made a payment for sin once for all. He made a pathway 
open to God. He may bring us to God in the middle of verse 18. There was a chasm between God and man from Genesis chapter 3 on. And Jesus Christ opens up the pathway to God. He allows us to enter into the Holy of Holies as Hebrews describes it. He tore the veil. And now we can have direct access with God. That is the result of Jesus' suffering. That is a beautiful thing that came out of that suffering that we are beneficiaries of. And then Jesus goes and declares victory over all evil in verses 19 through 21. To the demons who are being held captive until the final day of judgment. And finally, Jesus gets declared King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he sits at the right hand of God. Verse 22 in a position of authority and power, which is why in verse 11 of chapter four, it says to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. That Jesus Christ is the recipient of all glory in the future. He is the only judge. He's the only savior. He's the only king of kings and Lord of lords. So he becomes our example. And so we don't retaliate. We simply imitate. And so if you look back quickly, verses 13 through 17, you see what happens when we suffer. It's a blessing. Verses 13 to 14, counted a blessing is what he says. Verse 14, you are blessed. And don't be afraid, verse 14, in those moments. Instead, make sure that you are sanctifying Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, you're submitting to him as Lord, not just externally, but internally from the heart. There's a sincere relationship with Jesus Christ that drives your behavior. You're sanctifying. In other words, setting him apart. He's distinct as king. There's no competitors with him. You don't have two kings in your life. Sometimes you worship Jesus. Sometimes you worship this God. No, he alone is set apart as Christ, as Lord. And we're always ready to communicate to the people who may ask about the hope that's within you. We talked about the hopelessness of the world around us and people are looking for hope. And Peter says, in this moment, when you may be suffering, what people are actually wanting to hear is, why are you different? Why are you looking at all this positively? Why are you so optimistic when everything is crumbling? Why are you not concerned? Yes, it's frustrating to read the news these days. But why are you able to be calm, stable, move forward? It's because of verse 15, for the hope that's in you. And you're communicating that hope to people, the hope of eternal life, a living hope we already saw earlier. And we do this with a clean conscience, verse 16. And in verse 17, we do this, we suffer unjustly, Because we're being conformed to God's will. You're doing what is right. Because God wills it so, verse 17. This is the suffering that is a part of the Christian life. And so Peter now gets to the beginning of chapter 4. And in the first six verses, takes us back to where he started. Your behavior, my behavior among the Gentiles. And that behavior is to be different. Verse two, no longer pursuing the lust of men. Verse three, no longer pursuing a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. 
verse 4, no longer pursuing excesses of dissipation. That's the former life. That's the life before Christ. That's in the past. That's done. That is antithetical to godliness, sanctification, and holiness. We're no longer chasing all of those pleasures. Now we are living differently. Verse 2, for the will of God. Obeying Jesus Christ back at the beginning of chapter 1. Why? Because we're going to give an account. Verse 5, the one who's judging the living and the dead. And that's where the gospel is preached, verse 6, because there is coming a day of judgment and everyone will give an account, and especially those in this context who malign you. That's how Peter ends this second key section. And then he transitions to the third section. That takes us to the community of the saints, the good life that is lived in the context of the church. That begins in verse 7 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 5. And so you're on the back page, second page of the little handout, and you can see where it all begins. We serve the saints. I like to say this a lot because it's true. Every single Christian has a unique tailor-made spiritual gift. And if you don't use it, you're hurting the church. And you will give an account how you used or did not use the spiritual gift that God gave you. You can read Romans 12. You can read Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4, where the gifts are explained. You can read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. There are 18 different gifts described in the New Testament. All of us have them. If you're a Christian, you have it. And so Peter says, as we get into the community of the saints, we serve one another, verse 7, because the end is near. Therefore, make sure whatever you invest in, your every single day matters. Because the end is near. And what Peter says, it all begins with you being fervent in love for one another. Love covering a multitude of sins, being hospitable in verse 9. And then serving one another with that special gift that is the manifold grace of God. We've sang about the grace of God. It's an expression of God's grace to give you that spiritual gift. And then some of us have the gift of speaking, verse 11, and others the gift of serving. And when we serve, we do so by the power that God supplies. When we speak, we speak the utterances of God. Why? So that one purpose may be accomplished. Verse 11, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if you're asking yourself, how can I live a life that glorifies God? The answer is right there. You use your spiritual gift for the edification of the saints, for the equipping of the saints, and for the glory of God. That's the end result. And so Peter begins by speaking of the saints and says, serve one another. We know that he's talking to the saints because in verse 12, he says, beloved. In verse 7, he talks about prayer. In verse 8, he says, love one another. One another is a unique phrase in the New Testament for the believers. 
And then he ends chapter 5, verse 14, greet one another. One another begins at the, it happens at the beginning, happens in the end. Again, another section set apart by that phrase, focusing on believers. But then he brings suffering again, once again, in verses 12 through 19. Lots of suffering in 1 Peter, right? Why does he do that? How does it fit? I mean, we're talking about Christians now. How does suffering fit into this? Well, verse 11 said what? God will be glorified through the use of your spiritual gift, right? And then look at verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian, it glorifies God. You glorify God by serving the saints and you glorify God by suffering with the saints for God. That's how it fits here. He's talking about a way to glorify God with your life. Be willing to suffer as a Christian and that brings glory to God. And then he shifts the focus now to the leaders in the church. In the first four verses of chapter five, he talks about elders who are in the church and their leadership is to be characterized by zeal, it says. In verse two, Exercise leadership, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, not for sword and gain, but with eagerness. In other words, pure motives, not lording in verse three, but providing an example. So we lead with zeal, pure motives, and by example. Why? Because of verse four, there's a chief shepherd who's going to come back and we will give an account. I understand that this is directly related to the elders in the church, the pastors in the church, and that therefore applies to all of us who are submitting ourselves to the elders in this church. But I do think by extension and application, those individuals who have a care over the souls of people in a small group, in a community group, and perhaps a ministry group context, you too will give an account to God for how you led those people. There are other passages in the Bible that speak to that. So there's an application that can be drawn from this section to all believers who are serving in leading and shepherding other people. And so Peter says, we are just under shepherds, all of us. I'm a fellow elder, he says in verse one. He didn't elevate himself above the other elders, above the other pastors. He didn't say, I'm the Pope, the first Pope, by the way. He didn't say that. That's where the Catholic church is wrong from this verse alone. He says, I'm a fellow elder. And so we follow the leadership of the church. How? Of the church leaders. How? Verse five. You younger men, and I explained this to you when I spoke on this a few weeks back, that it's not referring to younger men in regards to gender and age, but it's speaking of those who are not elders. So all other Christians, that's the way this word is used. All of us are to be subject to our elders because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hebrews 13, 17 says, submit to your elders, make it a joy for them. Here it says, submit to them with humility because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I feel odd saying this as an elder of the church here, but I'll say it anyways, because that's what Peter is saying. If you want God to oppose you, do not humbly follow the leadership in the church. That's it. If you resist the leadership of the church, I'm not saying that the leader is always right. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying they're infallible or sinless. 
But I am saying that according to verse 5, God opposes those individuals who do not humbly subject themselves to the elders in the church. And understand the complexity of the situations that happen in difficult moments. I get all that. And we work through all that humbly, carefully, patiently, with understanding. But let's keep this verse in context. That's just an encouragement to all of us. Make sure we check our hearts. When leadership asks us of something, and I'm accountable to the elders of this church, make sure that we submit with humility. Otherwise, God marches against you with his entire army. And in those moments, when we're supposed to do that, verse 10 says, he will perfect you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. And the result of all that, verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. So again, God is glorified through our submission and he empowers us to obey. And of course, we saw in the middle of those verses two weeks ago that God expects us to trust him in everything in life. Verse six and seven talk about surrendering yourself to God. Surrendering yourself to God because of the future exaltation that awaits us. He will exalt you at the proper time, the idea being in eternity. But also because he cares for you, verse seven. So therefore, we throw all our anxiety on him, all of it. And we talked about how emphatic Peter's statements are here. All anxious things in your life place on him. Don't carry that burden. Let Jesus Christ take it away from you. Especially the burden that's introduced in verses 8 through 10. The fight with the devil. And the way we fight is we guard our minds. Be sober in spirit. Be on alert. We perceive his intent to devour us like a roaring lion, verse 8. And we understand his attacks and therefore we resist his attacks firmly in our faith, understanding that we're not unique in our battle. Well, just before Peter puts down his pen, he says, there's one more thing. And that's verses 12 through 14. Verses 12 through 14, he says, now, as you, as a Christian, as you live the good life in the Christian community, the last thing I'm calling you to do is to stand firm with other saints. Stand firm with the other saints in your life. And this is how we do it. First of all, by recognizing the faithfulness of others. By recognizing the faithfulness of others. Verse 12 says this, through Silvanus and our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter's introducing Silvanus. His other name is Silas. Now we know Silas because of the ministry that we read about in Acts 13 through 18, as he was a companion of Paul's. So now that he's attached himself to Peter, the indication is that Paul is dead, that he was his companion, his disciple, his follower, his co-apostle. And so most likely by the time first Peter is written, Paul is probably in heaven. And so now Peter introduces Silas. And when you look at the rest of the New Testament, he is a Jewish Christian. 
He's a Roman citizen. His name either comes from the Aramaic form of Saul, which means he would have had the same name as Saul Paul or the Saul of the Old Testament, or perhaps it's a Greek name that means Silvanus. Silas would be short for that. So Silvanus, Silas would be shortened. So most of the time in the Bible, he appears alongside Paul. And he's introduced for the very first time in Acts 15 in the fall of 49. First Peter is written about 64 AD. So about 15 years before First Peter is written. And he's introduced at the most important event in early church history. Acts 15. What is happening in Acts 15? This is your first chance to talk back. What is Acts 15 about? Seminary guys, you better know the answer to this. The Jerusalem Council. Thank you, seminary guy. Jerusalem Council. Thanks, Lawrence. Jerusalem Council. Now, the Jerusalem Council meets because there's a conflict between the Jews and Gentiles. The Jews want the Gentiles to be circumcised. And they want them to follow certain stipulations to be part of the church. And so there's a debate. All the heads. Imagine like the five heads of the mafia families coming together. All the apostles, all the pastors get together in Jerusalem to figure this out. What are we going to do with the Gentiles? Are we going to force them to get circumcised and to follow the Old Testament law? Or is there a different way to interact with them? And so there's a debate. Peter's there. Paul is there. James is there. And Silas or Silvanus is there. And in that chapter, Acts 15, we find out that he risked his life for the Lord. Verse 26. That he becomes a leading member of the community. That he's a prophet. That he's an apostle. That he becomes the emissary who's going to take the conclusion from the Jerusalem council and deliver it with Judas, Barnabas, and Paul to the Gentiles in Antioch. Which tells us that Silvanus Silas was an important, trustworthy, and a compelling figure. He was able to be trusted and then he would go and deliver the message and he would have to make an argument why the Gentiles could actually do what they do and not be circumcised. And in verse 32, I like this. Acts 15, 32, listen to what it says about him delivering this message with Judas. Judas and Silas, also being prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. They were long-winded preachers. That's what that says. They spoke for a long time. So when I speak for an hour, which is going to happen tonight, I'm like Silas. He was long-winded in his preaching. But then we find out that he ends up ministering with Paul in Antioch. What's the importance of Antioch? Antioch is the first place where the Christ followers were called Christians. Acts 11.26. Now, Silas wasn't there for that moment a few years back. But he would go back to Antioch, and then he would spend some time there ministering with Paul in this extremely important city in early Christianity. Guess where he goes next? He joins with Paul and Timothy. Timothy is a big-time player in the New Testament, isn't he? So now they're traveling together, and they go to Lystra, Phrygia, Galatia, Troas, Philippi. Philippi is the first church in Europe. If you're European, your Christian heritage goes back to Acts 16. Silas was there preaching. 
to such a degree that he gets arrested. He's thrown into prison. Remember that story? There's an earthquake as they're singing. The jailer is about to commit suicide. Paul says, stop, don't do this. The jailer and his whole family get saved. Silas is there, beaten alongside Paul. Then they move to Thessalonica. Guess what happens in Thessalonica? Acts chapter 17, verse 6. He is described along with Timothy as a man who has upset the world. That's his reputation. He is preaching a different king, Jesus. He is appearing in all these super important events in the book of Acts. From Philippi, the first European church, to Thessalonica. Then you guess where he goes to? Berea. What's important about Berea? The noble-minded Bereans. Remember that? They searched the scriptures in response to Silas's preaching. This is Silas. Then he goes probably to Athens. What's Acts 17? Mars Hill. Then he goes to Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians, it says that he's a preacher, an evangelist. The church in Corinth is started partially due to the efforts of Silas. And then he, alongside Paul and Timothy, write First and Second Thessalonians from Corinth to the church of Thessalonica, where they had been. And it's there where he's called an apostle of Christ, First Thessalonians 2.6. Now from Acts 18, that's Thessalonica and Corinth, we don't know what happened to him. He reappears in 1 Peter 5. And so there's a gap in the history of the New Testament. Probably he was, uh, we know that Paul asked him to stay in Thessalonica for a little while. That's Acts 18. And so perhaps he went a different direction and just started preaching the gospel elsewhere. And then perhaps Paul dies and he attaches himself to Peter. And so Peter now says he's a faithful brother. He's helping me write this letter. And we know, scholars have studied this letter in comparison to other New Testament letters. And the Greek of, the, of this letter, First Peter, is very Semitic. It has a Semitic style. Peter was a Jew. But it's written in elegant Greek. So Silvanus writes First and Second Thessalonians with Paul. The fact that First Peter is elegant in its Greek style, and from Acts 4, we know that Peter wasn't a highly educated man. That's what it says of him. The most likely Silvanus is actually helping him craft this letter and then delivers it. This is Silas. And all you get is a faithful brother. But then you chase him down all over the New Testament, and this is the profile that's built. But Peter has another saint that he wants us to consider and recognize the faithfulness of. Mark, verse 13. My son, Mark. You still holding on with me? Mm -hmm. All right, we've got a little bit more. We'll get there soon. Mark. To figure out how Mark ended up with Peter, we got to rewind 15 years. We got to go back to AD 48, Acts 15. You can go to Acts 15 just for a minute. Acts 15. Verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, 
along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Verse 39. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, or Silvanus, and left being committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Acts 13.13 talks about this disagreement. It talks about the separation of Mark and Paul. Or something happened in Pamphylia that John Mark decides to abandon Paul. This happened two years before Acts 15. Two years later, Paul hasn't forgiven him. And now he says, I don't trust him. And there arose a sharp disagreement. That is an extremely strong word. It means rage. It means provocation. A heated conflict as a result of irritation. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used to describe the anger of the Lord. Oftentimes. Deuteronomy 29, the anger of the Lord burned, that's the word, against that land. Paul was extremely upset with Mark. And to Luke's credit, he doesn't hide Paul's deficiencies. He tells it like it is. Now, who is he mad at? Mark. But who gets the brunt of his fury? Barnabas. Mark is not around. Barnabas. Remember who Barnabas is? Well, Barnabas is introduced in Acts 4.36 as the one whose name is also coming, it's coming, it's coming. I'm just going to go there. Acts 4.36. His name is Joseph, okay? He's Joseph, he's a Levite, he's from Cyprus. And he sells his land and brings the proceeds and gives it to the apostles. And then the story of chapter five takes place where we know that somebody else tried to do the same thing, Ananias and Sapphira, and they get killed by God because they lied, okay? But he was so devoted to the church that he sold his property and shared it with the people. But more importantly in this situation is this. Barnabas was Paul's first Christian friend. He was his mentor. He was his discipler. He introduced him to all of the apostles, it says in Acts 9. He brings him into the church, vouches for him because everybody's scared of him because of what? The last time we met Paul in Acts 8 and Acts 9, he's ravaging house after house. He's dragging people out of their homes, arresting them, hopefully trying to kill them. And now Barnabas finds out he's saved, they connect, and he becomes his mentor. He was so trusted by the apostles that in Acts 11, he takes a collection to Jerusalem to help the poor because of famine. Now, from our point of view, it's discouraging and heartbreaking and confusing how two apostles can have such a difficult relationship. And we don't have all the answers. But we do know that unfortunately, through the sin of man, God did something good. Kind of reminds us of Genesis 50:20. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so, because John Mark, who was Barnabas's cousin, 
John Mark comes from a prominent family because in Acts 12, when Peter is released from prison by an angel, the first place he goes to is John Mark's house. He's a well-known, he comes from a well-known family. But through this separation, John Mark connects with Peter. And if there's one person in the New Testament who would sympathize with John Mark and his abandonment and defection and betrayal of Paul, it would be Peter. Because on two occasions, Peter betrayed Jesus. You remember that? In Acts 16, Jesus calls him Satan because he wasn't thinking properly. And then at the end of the, the, the Jesus story, in the passion narrative, three times, he denies knowing him. Even though hours before, no more than a few hours before, he says, even if every single disciple around the staple in the upper room abandon you, I will never abandon you. I will die for you. A few hours later, he's asked by three people, aren't you his follower? And he, it says in Mark 14 and Matthew 26, repeatedly said, I do not know the man. And he began to swear. It says repeatedly, I do not know him until Jesus looked him right in the eyes. And remember that moment. And he was deeply sorrowful and he wept bitterly, it says. And also it's in the present tense suggesting he couldn't stop crying. He understood what he had done to Jesus. He betrayed Jesus like Mark betrayed Paul. And so if there's somebody that could actually help with John Mark's deep-seated remorse, it would be Paul, uh, Peter. And so what we learn from 1 Peter 5 is that Peter becomes his disciple, which is why he calls him my son in the faith. There's only one other father-son relationship in the New Testament, that's Paul and Timothy. And we know how close that mentorship was. So we can conclude that here, Peter ends up working with Mark. And we know from early church history that the gospel of Mark is written by Mark, but it's Peter's story. That's what the early church historians tell us, that he wrote down Peter's version of the Jesus story. He became a disciple and a follower of Peter. So we have Silvanus. An apostle, trusted, reputable, important, great preacher. And you have Mark, an imperfect discipler. And both of them appear in the end of the story. And Peter actually encourages us by paying attention to the people who are faithful. He didn't have to mention anybody. But he just brings them in and says, this is what they did. This is how you stand with the other saints. You identify their faithfulness, you mark it, and you celebrate it. Secondly, we'll move fast now. Remember the grace of God. Verse 12, remember the grace of God. At the end of the verse, the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Peter says he is exhorting and testifying. He's exhorting and testifying. He saw Jesus' teaching. He heard Jesus' teaching. He saw Jesus' um, transfiguration. He saw all these special moments 
that Jesus would use to teach them lessons. And he says, I'm a witness of all that. But here, I'm going to testify to you. I'm a witness, that's the same word, of the true grace of God. And I want you to stand firm in it. Grace has appeared multiple times in this book already. In verse 2 of chapter 1, we have the multiplication of grace given to us. In verse 10, it's this grace that would come in the future. In verse 13, it's our hope that's fixed on this future grace. In chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, God's grace helps us to endure suffering. Verse 7 of chapter 3 says marriage is the grace of life. In 4.10, the spiritual gift that God gives you is because of his grace. In verse 5 of chapter 5, he gives grace to the humble. And now in verse 10, in verse 10 rather, the God of all grace is the one who is perfecting you, strengthening you, and establishing you. So in other words, what Peter is teaching is the grace of God is to saturate our lives. And it's the true grace of God. Why does, it, why does he say it's true? Because it will never fail you. He will never abandon you. Every single word is true. It's yes and amen. Every promise is yes and amen. And so if we immerse ourselves into the grace of God, not just sing about it once a week, no, actually stand in it, follow it, immerse ourselves in it. We are being empowered by it. Then I think we can save with the value of vision. You have done all things well for me. All your work for me is perfect. And I praise you. And so we recognize the grace of God. We remember it. And third, the way we stand firm with the saints is we reciprocate the affection of the saints. Verse 13, she who's in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Babylon was a code word for Rome, but it's also a reference to the Old Testament, the exile. So there's two meanings here. Meaning Peter and Mark and Silvanus are still in Rome writing from a church in Rome to these migrant Christians in Turkey. And so they're saying the church in Rome sends you her greetings. And then verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. That was a gesture in the family context, little kiss. Interestingly enough, Clement of Alexandria in the early second century complains about people smacking their lips too loudly in churches when they kissed each other. And on top of that, some guys went a little too far and began kissing the girls. And he says, no, no, no. The boys kiss the boys, the girls kiss the girls. It's in Clement of Alexandria, if you want to read about it. In other words, people took a bit advantage of this command. But the idea behind here is not to start kissing in the gym. It's affection. Christians have a unique affection for each other. By the way, the holy kiss disappeared after the fourth century, so no practicing. (laughs) Bring it back. We're not bringing it back. (laughs) It's a holy kiss, right? Pure, sanctified, holy. It speaks to the purity of our relationships in the context of the church. We have affection for each other. We have selfless love, not selfish love. Well, finally, peace to you, verse 14, all who are in Christ. We rest in the peace of God. We rest in the peace of God. And here, Peter comes full circle. Back in chapter one, he says, may grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure 
And now he says, stand in the grace of God and peace may be to all who are in Christ Jesus. The irony of this statement is that in the middle of persecution, hostility, opposition, lack of possessions, the murder of family members and friends, Peter says, you can have peace. You can actually have peace. This is the ironic meaning behind this final phrase. Why? Because Ephesians 2.14 says, he himself is our peace. Jesus embodies the peace that he expects us to live by. In John 16.33, right before Jesus prays in John 17, this is the last verse of John 16. Jesus says this, these things I've spoken to you so that in in me, you may have peace. In the world, you have trouble, but take courage. I overcame the world. I've said this to you so that you may have peace. And then right after the resurrection, in John 20, the first time the apostles see Jesus, guess what the first words are out of his mouth? Peace to you. And they're so stunned that he's alive. He says it again, peace to you, I say. A week later, Thomas wasn't with them. Jesus reappears to show himself to Thomas. And his first words again are peace to you. Because Jesus is offering peace, eternal peace, because the chasm between you and God has been bridged. Your sin can no longer be held against you ever if you're a true Christian. There is supernatural eternal peace because of forgiveness for your sins. But there's also a peace in this life. Peace to you, it may be multiplied, but only to those who are in Christ Jesus, which is a call to repent. If you're not a Christian, you can't experience the good life. You can't experience peace in this world. In this world, you will have trouble, not peace. But in Jesus Christ, you may have peace and it's going to be multiplied to you. This is Peter's promise. Peace is our future reality in eternity. But peace is also experienced today for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, as Peter wraps up the letter, he wants us to remember that the good life is available to every single person who roots his life on Christ. That's the foundation. Who lives wholly in a secular community and who spends his life or her life in the church, for the church, advancing the church, serving the church. And those are the elements of a life that will be considered the good life. And as I end, let me read for us a prayer from the Valley of Vision, and we'll close. It's on the screen for you to follow. Heavenly Father, My faith is in thee. My expectation is from thee. My love goes out toward thee. I believe thee, accept thy word, acquiesce in thy will, rely on thy promises, trust thy providence. I bless thee that the court of conscience proves me to be thine. I do not need signs and wonders to believe, for thy word is sure truth. I've cast my anchor in the port of peace, knowing that present and future are in nail-pierced hands. Thou art so good, wise, just, holy, that no mistake is possible to thee.
Thou art fountain and source of all law. What thou commandest is mine to obey. I yield to thy sovereignty all that I am and have. Do thou with me as thou wilt. Thou hast given me silence in my heart. In place of murmurings and complaints, keep my wishes from growing into willingness, willings, my willings from becoming fault-finding with thy providences. And have mercy on me. If I sin and am rebellious, help me to repent. Then take away my mourning and give me music. Remove my sackcloth and adorn me with beauty. Take away my sighs and fill my mouth with songs. And when I am restored and rest in thee, give me summer weather in my heart. That's the peace that's promised in First Peter. Summer weather in your heart for the rest of your life. You can't have the good life. You just have to live it according to First Peter. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for Peter's letter. Who knew that nearly 2,000 years later, we would be reading it, talking about it, and applying it. Thank you that you read this letter, wrote this letter through the Holy Spirit and Peter and Sylvanus for us. We're the beneficiaries of your sovereign grace and your word. I do pray that every single person in this room would have a relationship with your son and that they would experience the good life. And for those who may not, that they would recognize that a day of judgment is coming. They will give an account. They may malign today. They may mock. They may cause pain and do harm to Christ followers. But in the end, all of us will stand before you on judgment day. And we're so grateful that those who believe in Jesus Christ will not be judged for their sins, but we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. And I pray that you would bring those who are not yours just yet into a place of repentance, humility, seeking your face and seeking your forgiveness. The rest of us, help us to enjoy the life that you have given us. And we enjoy it because... It's based on our relationship with Jesus. It's based on our holy conduct in this world. And it's based on our service for one another in the church. Amen.